0: Welcome to Advisory Opinions. I am not David French, but I am Sarah Isger. So this morning, David's wife got a flat tire. No big deal, right? She has her spare. But it turns out last week, she had gotten a flat tire as well. So no spare this time around. And David, who is a better husband than probably all of you listening, went out to wait with his wife for the tow truck to come. And he missed our podcast today. Whole thing. The good news was that I didn't need David today because we were talking to Jonathan Ellis, who works in the Solicitor General's office. He's an assistant Solicitor General. He argues cases before the Supreme Court. He was uh, back there when I worked at the Department of Justice. He's an awesome guy. And I was so pumped that he agreed to come on the podcast and just explain a little bit about. The 10th Justice and what their office does. So it'll be a really fun conversation. You won't even miss David, except we don't talk about Dune. We don't have any references to Lord of the Rings. The sword doesn't come up. All right, I miss David a little. He'll be back. All right, we're gonna welcome to the podcast, Jonathan Ellis, Jonathan, I am so thrilled about this. Let me give your little mini bio, according to Sarah. So you worked as a computer programmer between undergrad and law school, which is really interesting, an unusual background for a lawyer, actually, although my co-clerk was also a computer programmer. Uh, So maybe not as unusual as I think it is anymore. You went to law school at Penn. Then after law school, you clerked on the D.C. Circuit for Ray Randolph, a very popular Uh, and uh, influential, well-respected judge. You then worked as a Bristow Fellow. We're going to talk about Bristow Fellowships. That's in the office of the Solicitor General. And then you went on to some other job clerking for some guy named John Roberts, who people on this podcast may or may not have heard of. Uh, After that, you worked in private practice for four years. And now you are back in the Solicitor General's office as a real deal. Like, you argue cases, you wear the morning coat, you are an assistant solicitor general.
1: A- assistant to the solicitor general? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Does, do they hand you those mugs when you arrive?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the great, great parts about the job.
0: Uh, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you being here. We talked about the timing for this and decided it made sense to go right after the Supreme Court stopped hearing oral arguments and their last day of arguments was Monday for the whole term. So that means, you know, you're on summer break, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. In in retrospect, probably should have kicked that out a couple uh, more weeks. Um, uh, Not so much. No, um, we can, I don't know if you want to talk about, we can go into what's the cutoff is what's, it's what's looming now. Uh, So there's still plenty of work to be done in the office.
0: Well, I mean, the justices are pretty famous, at least pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch uh, teaches in Italy and Padua uh, pretty often. They, you know, are taking European trips often, teaching. Um, but I, you know, that's might be the privilege of being a justice and not so much an assistant to the Solicitor General.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. The summer uh, will slow down a little, but it's not not yet.
0: So, the Supreme Court does. Unlike, uh, for instance, the Fifth Circuit where I clerked, it does have, though, a uh, seasons to it. So what are the seasons of the Solicitor General's office?
1: So, uh, you know, as just alluded, I guess, we we do work on the court's calendar for the most part. And so um, things are busiest in the office uh, when the court is in session, um, starting in October every year until, uh, until in the spring. Um, the The summer we're still working on briefs uh, in the Supreme Court, as well as um, the other parts of our job, which we can go into at some point. If you
0: oh, want let's go into it. That. I want to know what would you say you do here.
1: <laughs> so, okay, fair enough. Uh, so, I, you know, the most high profile thing that we do is brief and argue cases uh, in the Supreme Court, and so uh, the Solicitor General is uh, represents the United States. Um, and all its agencies, et cetera, um, in, uh, before the Supreme Court. Uh, that includes uh, cases in which uh, the United States is a party. And so, a criminal case or a, a case challenging a, um, challenging a regulation or challenging an act of Congress as unconstitutional. Um, but it also includes uh, participating in cases in which we're not a party, but we have, the federal government has an interest. Uh, so think about a, a private dispute that concerns a federal statute that um, the federal government, uh, some agency administers or, you know, a constitutional case against a state government um, that turns on the meaning of a constitutional provision that applies to the federal government, too. So that that's the biggest, most high profile, and it's a lot of fun part of the job. Um, but, you know, we also uh, work on um, on. The cert uh, docket, the cert stage work. Uh, you know, the, the court hears uh, something like seventy cases every year on the merits and argues. But they get about seven thousand um, cert petitions. A lot of those cases are cases in which the federal government uh, is a party, and so we work on the briefs in opposition um, to to try to prevent the court from hearing those cases in which we won below. Um, we work. Uh, we file. Uh, we do invitation briefs, which we can talk about, where the court will occasionally. Um, Here, look at a certain petition and decide they want to know what the government thinks. So they'll uh, issue a cbsg it's called a, a call for the views of the Solicitor General, and we we'll, we'll work on those uh, briefs. And then we work. Um, the The SG is actually uh, responsible for overseeing the appellate work um, uh, of the of the federal government in all the lower courts' of appeals too, which which means, principally, that a, the a federal government cannot, with some exceptions for uh, particular agencies cannot appeal a decision in which they lost in the lower court without or, or not appeal uh, without the SG's authorization. And so uh, we work on trying to tee up those decisions for for the SG.
0: And what about the sort of reverse CVSG process? And I'm thinking of the angry cheerleader case, as we call it here, um, where it's not that the court asks for the views of the solicitor general, it's that the solicitor general has views to offer.
1: Right. So, um, yeah, so we participate in a lot of cases as uh, as amicus, uh, and so when the court grants a case in which we're not a party, um, basically without fail, we take a look at it um, to make see if it's a case in which the federal government has an interest um, and wants to participate, uh, and uh, you know, so what we'll do is uh, someone will take a look at that uh, at the first uh, at the outset, um, and then we'll often solicit the views. of um, the divisions in DOJ or the, uh, or the federal agencies, uh, that might have an interest in the case and to see if they think that we should, um, the, that the federal government should participate. And if so, what position it it take? Um, we, we often then meet with the parties. Uh, we'll call each of the counsel for each side and say, Hey, we're thinking about participating. Do you want to come in and make a pitch? Um, and you know, they, Basically, invariably do, uh, and so they'll come and uh, and it, it it really turns in you know usually about forty five minutes to an hour with each side, um, and it starts off with a presentation, but it very very quickly turns into a moot court, um, and so where the deputy mostly is is leading the questioning, but you've got representatives from um, from the office from around DOJ and from often from uh, several federal agencies. You get to just pepper the, the litigant with questions about their position in the case um, and how it, it's going to affect or they think it's going to affect the federal government and why the federal government should come in and, and participate or support one side uh, or the so other. You
0: have three options at that point. One, decline to get involved. Two, submit a brief. Or three, submit a brief and ask for argument time. What differentiates those last two?
1: Uh, well, really the court, I, uh, I, it's pretty, uh, unusual that, um, we would submit a brief and then not ask for argument time. I think if, if it's a case in which the federal government feels like it has an interest sufficient to, uh, make its to file a brief for one side or the other, or, or neither party, which we sometimes do, um, it's, it's also usually in our interest, uh, almost always in our interest to ask the court for argument time, um. And so, you know, we ask for 10 minutes is usually what we ask for in a case like that.
0: And uh, the court almost always says yes, but not always.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you can go back and look at the stats. Um, the court, it, it, we're sort of uh, unique in that respect that, um, you know, the court often, almost always, grants uh, our request to participate in argument. Um, but not always, uh, I think they denied our request twice this term, which is the first time in a long time. I think they've denied two of them, but they, you know, just every once in a while deny, uh, one of our, one of our requests, um, which, you know, throws things a little bit for a loop around here because, um, we're all trying to, is trying to manage everybody's assignments and arguments and that sort of thing. But obviously it's the court's prerogative and, um, we're happy to participate when they let us.
0: So I found that interesting because on the one hand, one of the trends in the Roberts court overall has been more expanded argument time set aside the SG part, just like for those big hit parade cases, longer argument time. Um, then you have COVID though, where there is no 10 minute argument for the SG's office. You still have to go through all the justices, which means it's, 30 minutes minimum at this point, really. Um, so basically, everything is expanded argument time, and I'm wondering whether the, we should put a little asterisk next to the two declined arguments as being kind of COVID-specific, because they can't just give you 10 minutes, and maybe they don't want 45 minutes of Jonathan time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that they do not. Uh, uh, so, you know, that's I hadn't thought about that before. It's true that uh, all the code, almost all of the code arguments uh, have been longer and I don't think anybody has been uh, has been kept to 10 minutes um, during during uh, the pandemic or during the telephonic uh, arguments I, um, so maybe that's related I, I my guess is it's not my guess is they just looked at the case and decided it was one in which uh, the federal government's interest was not um, as strong as, as, as they thought it, as it looked as we thought it was or maybe they thought we couldn't bring as much unique information to bear. They, they obviously don't explain these decisions. Um, but you know, maybe it's related, uh, to not wanting to hear it wouldn't have been me. So (laughs) the joke's on them. They would have got one of my more, uh, competent colleagues, but, um,
0: well, speaking of which, how do you get assigned specific cases? How do you prepare for oral argument and how many cases a term does an assistant SG expect to argue?
1: Yeah. So um, the assignments are handled. uh, Ultimately, the SGE is responsible for assigning uh, cases, briefs, and arguments, although she works uh, pretty closely with the deputies in in figuring that out. Um, So each of the deputies in in our office has a sort of substantive docket. And so we've got Eric Fagan is the criminal deputy who does uh, basically uh, almost all of the criminal cases uh, that come before the court, as well as supervising the criminal appeals in the law And lower he's courts. relatively
0: new to that position. There had been a criminal deputy for a long, long time. Uh, and so Eric, Eric, I mean, people stay in these jobs.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. It's a good gig. I mean, it's a hard gig. Uh, the deputies in our office work amazingly hard, uh, but it's a good gig. It's fun work and it's important work. And yeah, they stay in the role for a, a really long time.
0: All right, so you've got Eric, our new criminal deputy.
1: Yep. Uh, and you, you want me to run through the deputies? Yeah, yeah, why not? Okay. Uh, so Ed Needler, uh, I think he's the longest serving deputy. I'm sure, actually, I'm certain of it. In uh, history, he does a,
0: like, in, just. Uh, I don't know, no, no, no right now, right now.
1: I don't know, <laughs> I'm not doing history, although he served for he a might really be, long time. Yeah,
0: I mean, if you've, like, my husband was a Bristow. Needler was there. I mean, there's, there's no, um, I don't know that history, written history goes back before the time of Needler.
1: Yeah, he 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 recently uh, celebrated his 40th anniversary at DOJ. Uh, he is amazing uh, institutional knowledge. Um, and, you know, he, he'll just you'll be talk, chatting about a case, and he and he'll say, "Oh, I think we made this argument in this brief in you know 1981." I uh, it's, I, it's, I can't remember the name of the case, but it's it's it, you know he'll, he'll say. You're not, don't ask me why I know this, but I'm, I think it's in 482 us, a decision by O'Connor, uh, to look it <laughs> up. Like,
0: he okay. also looks like a character, like one of the professors from Harry Potter. He has this amazing beard and these little glasses. And like, if you, if I gave you a lineup of humans and said, pick the longest serving deputy SG, I don't think any, it'd be a hundred percent would pick Ed Needler.
1: It, I think that's right. <laughs> you get a quill, like you might know. Well, every time you argue at the court, you know, and Ed has enough to you know,
0: <laughs> to make a around. new bird. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> he really does. He really does. I, I think he has the most uh, arguments of any, you know, active uh, advocate before the court right now. Um, it's pretty amazing. So that's that's Ed. He's got part of the civil docket. Um, Malcolm Stewart uh, has uh, another part of the civil docket. Uh, he's been around for some time, uh, although not as he was an assistant before deputy. Um, so sometimes you'll pull a brief from the files, and it's got Ed as the deputy and Malcolm as the assistant, and you're feeling pretty good about what's in there. Um, uh, and then Curtis Gannon is the newest uh, deputy. He came over from OLC. He was an assistant, and then he went to OLC, and now um, he's a deputy. He's got a, actually a portion of the civil docket and a portion of the criminal docket. Um, a little bit of it. They're doing some shifting around now um, for that, I'm and gonna- then.
0: I'm gonna tell a Go story ahead. about Curtis real quick because Curtis is uh, falls into that uh, very small group of people. Like I can only think of one other person right now who falls into this group for me of best humans on the planet. Like if there's a meteor and we only get to save two people, I already have my votes and Curtis is one of them. Uh, he is, he's a Jones clerk, so he comes from my clerk family. And uh, he is just one of the kindest, most thoughtful, generous, um, lovely people. And he's fun and I mean he's the geekiest wonderful person. Uh, but here's the fun story. So after Comey is fired, Rod kind of goes into this um hole in the in the deputy's office at DOJ those next few days. And he's just, he's in the office till like one or two in the morning. I wait him out and watch him leave most of those nights just to see if he needs anything, wants to tell me what's going on. He does not. He's a hard pass on that. Um, But like, you know, you still like, there's still like a rhythm to what's going on. And then um, one night he truly like did not leave his office the whole time. I tried waiting him out and couldn't. He just hadn't left. And I was like, I got to go to sleep. This is bonkers. And so I got into work very early the next morning, like probably, um, you know, seven, seven thirty, And I called up to Curtis's office and I said, um, Curtis, I need to know every way that you can appoint a special counsel under the regs. I need to be able to explain it to reporters. Uh, and because we don't know how this is going to get done, we just got to prepare as many ways as possible. I'm coming up in 30 minutes and like <laughs> God bless Curtis. Um, he, he sat there with all the books opened and tabbed, and like what he's able to do in 30 minutes is a little shocking. Um, and so by the time Rod actually told anyone that we were appointing a special counsel, we were already incredibly well-prepared to explain the regulations, the DOJ regulations under which it was done. And the only way that happens is by having someone like Curtis who like doesn't blink, doesn't ask questions and already knows exactly where to look and like pulls that book off of his shelf. So I was so thrilled when he moved over to the solicitor general's office. He isn't, he's an asset to anyone, um, in any team. So yay, That's true. Curtis. That's true.
1: Yep. Yep. And so in that respect, he fits in very well with all the Rex of the deputies who are, uh, just amazing, amazing lawyers. Um, and you know, it, it, it is a benefit to the United States that they they are there and that they stick around uh, for so long. Um, and then I guess, the, so the last deputy, uh, just to round it out uh, right now uh, is Elizabeth Threlager, who is um, is the principal deputy uh, and acting Solicitor General. Uh, the most recent addition to the office, but she was an assistant before, actually she was an assistant when I started. Um, so also returned to the office. It's been good to have her back.
0: Yeah, we don't have a nomination for Solicitor General yet.
1: No, we don't. No, some eager folks around my office uh, <laughs> wanting to find out who that who that might be.
0: Um, it's you. Congrats.
1: <laughs> I if someone's taking money on that bet, uh, <laughs> let me in. <laughs> um, all
0: right, so they're assigning the cases, but are you you know are you basically a grab bag? Like you could get criminal or civil. Um, how do the assistants yeah. get lined yeah.
1: up? So unlike the deputies, uh, we don't have uh, formal dockets anyways. We are all generalists. uh, And so we uh, just get whatever comes our way. Uh, And so, you know, what that means is it's signed largely by, uh, at least the cases, the briefs are assigned largely by availability. Um, Although you do sort of over time uh, develop sort of baby dockets. Um, And so, you know, you do a case about, um, done a bunch of cases about uh, about the, the, patent trial and appellate uh, board uh and uh and, and i've done because you
0: are know, a computer uh, guy
1: uh no, I think thiss one just landed on my desk one day and wow. um and so I keep doing them. um God who has the FERC
0: baby and, docket you <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know, actually, I actually just, <laughs> I just finished working on a perk case, but- um,
0: Or Arisa, uh, so maybe I think.
1: I'm, maybe like, I'm developing one. Ooh, I have a piece of the ERISA docket. Actually, I, I like it. It's kind of, it's fun. I like ERISA. I didn't <laughs> well, like know. it before, but now that I've done it, once you like dig in to a case, you know, and you get all wrapped around it, 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 it can all be fun. That's why I'm an appellate lawyer. I like to do, you know, basically anything, and I find most hard legal questions fun once you dig in.
0: Um, that's sort of the thesis of this whole podcast, I guess, is like, once you dig in, there is nerdery and joy to be found. Okay, so how many cases do you argue a term?
1: So uh there's a pretty strong tradition that your first, um, your first term in the office as an assistant, you get one argument and only one argument. And then after that, uh, they're assigned, the arguments are assigned by seniority, uh, like most things uh, in the office. And so... <laughs> Um, and so what that means in practice is that most non first year assistants get two every year, uh, and then a handful, uh, typically get three this year is a little bit strange because they had to move a bunch of arguments, uh, over from the spring, uh, that they got canceled in April in, uh, or March and April. Um, and, and so there's, the numbers are pretty low this year, but that's generally what you can expect.
0: And then the SG and deputies tend to do one per sitting, correct?
1: No, not one per sitting. The deputies tend to do four. Um, in a Sorry, year.
0: I didn't mean per term. I meant like per, uh, like oral argument sitting.
1: Right. So, yeah, but so the deputies only do four. So there's, there are more than four sittings. They typically do about.
0: <gasps> got it, got after it. The, term.
1: Um, the SG will often do uh, one a sitting, but, but not always. Um, and, you know, the, the, it, it kind of, some of it t- depends on, uh, there are cases that are sort of, sg cases like that you know, when when the obamacare case comes up uh one of, you know or one of the one of the biggies that has got to be on the front of the new york times you know you're like well that's an sg and there are cases that are deputy arguments and then there are cases that are like obviously assistant arguments not, as we mentioned FERC
0: Arissa just... copyright <laughs> <Yeah>. patent <laughs> <laughs> the sexy cases
1: although google the oracle that was a that was a malcolm argument um That is a biggie.
0: That was a biggie. um, Okay, so uh, it is very famous that the Solicitor General, I mean, speaking of traditions, right, like there's a closet full of kind of gross morning suits. Uh, (laughs) Like they're, um, how to describe it? If you have not been to uh, a a wedding where the bride and groom insisted on this sort of thing, this is tails. They are gray, pinstriped, tails and the pants are kind of weird actually frankly uh in my opinion um the, the suit coats i can kind of get on board with the pants are very strange to me
1: yeah it's ridiculous looking outfit um uh, uh i mean it's great i like to do it i love the tradition um there's really something special about getting to put it on and standing in front of the Supreme Court uh we can't let stand um at, in representing the united states but the outfit is sort of ridiculous um but after you- uh well after f- my first argument uh, oh sorry. After my first argument, I, I um I was stood on the on the steps uh of the court uh with my wife, you know, and took a picture and my wife posted it on Facebook. And then she had to like very quickly write in the comments that no, that's not the outfit Jonathan chose <laughs> as the one he thought he should wear uh when he <laughs> argued before the Court. That you know, represents
0: like, oh, wow. his personality. <laughs> um yeah. first of all so I know, for instance, Rod Rosenstein uh, sort of famously argued a case as the AG or deputy AG sometimes like sort of use their prerogative to argue one of the, the lesser SCOTUS cases during their tenure. So Rod Rosenstein did argue a case uh, and they found him a morning suit that fit. But when you are actually an assistant SG and you're going to do this on the regular, do you use one of the stock morning suits or did you get a bespoke morning suit?
1: Uh, neither. It turns out uh, that uh, Charles Toit, I think is how you say that place. Um, I don't know if I'm, I didn't mean to put a plug in, except that it's the only place I know uh, around here where you can buy off the rack morning, uh, morning coat. So uh, <laughs> I think all of the newest assistants that have joined, at least since I joined, uh, almost all of them were, uh, bought, bought their morning coat from um, from Charles toit,
0: And during COVID we can't see you. The justices can't see you. This is all telephonic and you're still wearing it.
1: Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) You you get that that's
0: crazy, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, I do. Um, But, you know, that's it. It, When the court announced uh, that we were, that they were going to do telephonic arguments, it, it it was, you know, it was a question. Um, but it was resolved, uh, as Chief Francisco sent out a note and said, we are going to continue wearing, uh, our morning suits for the, for the arguments and, and we have, and we continue to do so.
0: That's just because Noel, so Noel Francisco was the, uh, confirmed solicitor general through the Trump administration. And he left, um, right after that, I would assume like right after that decision, basically, uh, as is tradition. Yeah. So the, usually the solicitor general leaves uh, at the conclusion of the last full Supreme Court term of that presidential term, um, give or take, and lets their principal deputy as acting Solicitor General for then the next fall through the election, which is what happened here. Knoll um, looks uh, like he was born in a morning coat to me. Like he, I thought, just the look of Noel really, I mean, he should have been born in the 19th century. It would have, like, the all of it. I was very for it. Um, but that's not how he dresses at all. The rest of the time, he was sort of famous for having like a bulky sweater and a cigar out on a bench, reading briefs in the dead of winter. Sometimes he would take his convertible over to the mall, have the top down with the heat on and smoke his cigar and read his briefs over there. It was, um, it was like a a thing that I would tell, you know, the law clerks or interns that if you wander around the building, um, Occasionally, you'll just like bump into the Solicitor General, so you never know. And always be polite, especially if that person is stacked with papers and briefs.
1: <laughs> can I can I tell a, a, an embarrassing story uh, about about uh, Noel and his? It's been embarrassing to me, not Noel, <laughs> uh, about his penchant for reading briefs in his in his convertible. So um, I was I, I would sometimes sometimes go over to the mall. It's just across the street from uh, Main Justice, as you know. And run um, around around the mall, uh, just because I like to run. So I did that. Uh, I did that one day um, when I was uh, when we were back in the office, and I ran uh, all around the up around the Capitol and around the um, Washington Monument and around the Lincoln Memorial, like a five mile run. And I got done, and I got back to the office, and I realized. That I had had uh, the key to my car in my back pocket, and there was a hole in my back pocket, and the key to my car was no longer in my back pocket. Um, so that was a sad discovery. Uh, and I went back to I went back, I just finished a five mile run. I, I like I'm pretty tired. I went back to the mall to sort of retrace my steps uh, to see if I could find the key to my car. Uh, and then for the only time in my life well, first of all, I got back there. And as I get back to the mall, it begins to
0: pour down. Perfect. So now I'm, yeah. Yeah,
1: I'm walking <laughs> around the mall looking for my key in the pouring rain. And I pass one of those ridiculous scooters. And I think to myself, <laughs> I am super tired and it is, it is raining and I need to find this key. And so the only time in my life I rented one of these scooters. I pull out my Uber app, you know, and I get the scooter. And so now I'm scooting around the mall in running clothes, soaking, sopping wet, looking for my key, and I can't find it. And I look over, and who do I see sitting in their car, convertible top up, but my boss, Noel Francisco, preparing for argument. And I just, what do you do, right? I just, it just waved and scooted off.
0: I'm crying. <laughs> That's that would happen to me. It's so perfect. <laughs> um, and you never found the key.
1: I did not. No.
0: Wow. Sad. That is, that is awful. Uh, yeah. DOJ, by the way, has an interior courtyard that is beautiful. It's like the thing I probably miss most about DOJ. Cause I would spend all my afternoons out there, no matter the, the heat temperature, uh, reading my stuff. Um, it's also a good way to see the comings and goings of people who use motorcades, by the way, uh, the FBI director comes in through the courtyard, the DAG, the AG, any cabinet official. So, you know, you sort of pick up some information as well, but we're across the street from what I call the spider garden, but what is actually called the sculpture garden. Um, I call it the spider garden because my favorite one there is the giant spider sculpture. (laughs) Um, uh, so that's also a popular DOJ place where you could occasionally see people uh, walking or having their little walk and talk meetings. Uh, there's a gym in the Department of Justice where people run who don't want to lose their keys, but it's in the basement and it's really, really depressing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do use the gym. I used to use the gym, uh, but but uh, only for like you know the, the locker rooms. Much much prefer to run outside uh, with the unfortunate side fact that you can use your key in the mall and all right on scooter. before
0: we leave the morning coats women wear the morning suit as well
1: uh it's up to the it's up to the 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 advocate uh in fact nobody in the office none of the women in the office right now wear uh wear a morning coat um sg uh kagan did I think um she was very famous for doing that um and but uh, and I think a few of the assist i uh, not no I know no, no, I know a few of the assistant female assistants have since gotten sort of custom morning suits. Uh you can't buy those off the rack from Charles DeWitt. Um and so I, I at the moment I think none of the none of the females in the office wear wearing
0: morning coats. Just another example of discrimination in the legal practice that you can't buy off the rack morning coats from a place called Charles <laughs> DeWitt. Mm-hmm.
1: Very narrow discrimination, but
0: yes. <laughs> uh, do you know where the tra- when the tradition started?
1: I don't. No, I probably should.
0: I mean, it's interesting only because the uh, Department of Justice as we know it now didn't really exist in the 19th century. And so it's not actually like this carry-on from like, oh, the Civil War times. Like, it's almost certainly not. The position of the Solicitor General is you know, relatively new in the scope of human history, but like even in the scope of American government, it's relatively new. Um, So that's sort of, that's, that's interesting. It does remind me of the, you know, one of the great 30 rock lines uh, where it's after, you know, Liz Lemon walks in uh, after work and Alec Baldwin is wearing a tux. And she's like, why are you wearing a tux? And he goes, it's after six lemon. I'm not a farmer. (laughs) So maybe that's what's going on. Y'all just want to keep it, keep it fancy.
1: I mean, it's a, it's a formal kind of office.
0: It is a formal office for sure. I would argue that the office of the Solicitor General is more beautiful than the office of the Attorney General or Deputy Attorney General.
1: I have not spent as much time in the, in those two offices, other offices. Although I think the office of the Solicitor General right now, uh, it used to be the office of the AG, I'm, I might be wrong about that, but I think it. I think it was at one time. So maybe that explains.
0: Gosh, all these offices have moved. The, now the office of the assistant attorney general for civil rights used to be the office of the FBI director. That's a big deal. And like when they shoot movies and stuff, everyone wants to come see that office, which by the way, like oddly my office uh, handles those things. My former office, the office of public affairs. We don't get many movie requests, but when we do, boy, am I there for it. Back to business. So uh, the Department of Justice is this odd hybrid between uh, political appointees and civil servants. You know, throughout the government, that's true, but most other departments are policy making. But the Department of Justice has a policy role, but it also has this very non-political role. And there are political um, SG positions and the, well, the Solicitor General and the Principal Deputy Solicitor General. And then there are civil Solicitor General positions, which you are, your career. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: The Solicitor General is known as the 10th Justice. You know, the the sort of point being there are nine justices to the Supreme Court. They're all a really big deal. And then there's a 10th Justice. And it's the Solicitor General because that person is so trusted and involved in the Supreme Court's docket. I guess I'm just sort of curious. How you think the Solicitor General's office maintains credibility through political appointees, through administrations? Um, it's always sort of the tenth justice, the solicitor general's office, regardless of who's occupying it.
1: Yeah. So I mean, first off, we don't we don't use that term. The tenth justice in <laughs> any familiar. With it, but it's not <laughs> as if uh, it's not as if anybody in the office uh, is, you know, in, including the SG herself, is uh, is thinking of herself as uh, as the tenth justice. No, you have um, the mug
0: that says "Assistant to the Solicitor General," and she correct. has the mug that that's says 10th Justice."
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, so, but, but you know, you're, I, we've already talked about the amicus uh, participation. The court often lets us participate in amicus and calls for the abuses of the Solicitor General other sort of unique perks, um, you know, there's the office, the Solicitor General actually has an office in the court, um, which is nice where we can go and, um, uh, and hang out during argument if we're not going to be in the courtroom. They pipe the audio in. We can go there before argument, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, and then, you know, the the, the court just recognizes that, you know, that every new SG is introduced to the court. If you look through the pages of the, of the U.S. report, uh, you'll see at the beginning when the new SG is, is, uh, appointed confirmed. Um, so, you know, to, to your question though, you know, how does the court, uh, or does the office maintain credibility? I, I think, you know, in part it is because there's, there's some level of, of deference given to our office because, uh, you know, when the same court and branch of the same government. And so it's not, you know, sort of unusual for the court to look to, uh, to the representative of the executive branch, and give some deference and respect uh, to that person uh, and that person's office. Um, but I, I think beyond that, I think what we do, what we try to do, is is play it straight w- with the court. I mean, we do have two political appointees, as you point out, but that only two uh, of the office. And um, although the, you know the, the views of the federal government of the uh, are before the court change. Uh, in some cases, some set of cases between administrations, it's not as many as you think. Um, you know, sort of like uh, the the public perception of the Supreme Court is that all their decisions are five four and then these big monster and divisive things, and that's not that's not the truth. And it's similar for uh, for the federal government. But the position of the federal government in most cases it doesn't change drastically, if at all, between administrations. And then, regardless of you know sort of what our bottom line is, um, the briefs that uh, that we write, we try to be uh, as sort of honest and accurate as we can. And so uh, our, our briefs have gray covers, and like you know all the other briefs that get file with the courts have these like color coded um, rules for the color, and the federal government just gets to file and does file all its brief with gray uh, covers and and it sort of sort of reflects the inside of the brief, too um is that we're just here with a straight man. Uh and so if you want to hear and read uh a, a straight, unbiased accounting of the facts of a case, um, pick up the gray brief. That's that's sort of our goal. Um and really I can say when I was clerking that was I I I knew that if I wanted to get it here, see what the law was, uh see what the facts were, I could pick up the gray brief. And we work really hard to protect that um that reputation uh with the court, even though you know obviously we have a view. Obviously, we're advocating for a particular position. Uh, we try to do that in a way that, uh, that sort of lays, puts our cards on the table for the court. I, lo-
0: I never thought of the gray color as a metaphor, and I really, really like it. And I will now talk about that constantly and not give you any credit.
1: Great. I'm sure I stole <laughs> it from somebody else.
0: Uh All right. So when you think of the social scene in D.C., the most coveted tickets for politicos in the city are at the White House. It's the Easter egg roll. It's the Fourth of July and watching the fireworks from the, the lawn of the White House. But if you're a lawyer, the most coveted ticket all year round is the Christmas party at the Solicitor General's office. There aren't really decorations exactly, and it's mostly hanging out in the big marble hallways that you know, are there all the time anyway, but it's a bit of a who's who of DC, you know, appellate world, um, to tell my embarrassing story, justice Kavanaugh was there, uh, after he had been confirmed and all of the reporters, uh, you know, wanted to meet him. And so I was doing a little intro to justice Kavanaugh and I was, um, standing sort of leaning, whatever against one of the trash cans and it's not like one of those like party trash cans. It's like a tin rounded top flippy door trash can. Um, And in doing, I know that trash can, you know, that trash can (laughs) in doing so um, while leaning and trying to act really nonchalant. Like I just, of course talk to justices all the time to impress my reporters because you know, them thinking I have access to everyone in the universe is good for me Uh, and makes them not try to go get leaks in the department. Um, Anyway, leaning against there, I dropped, I, I was holding a phone number, and I dropped instead my phone, the phone number, and the napkin that I had actually tried to throw away all in the trash can. So while facing Justice Kavanaugh, trying to make conversation, which also, well... I'm trying to dig through the trash can to get my phone back out. And so I'm not paying attention to what I'm saying and, (laughs) and say, basically ask whether he thought that, um, Matt Damon was like good looking enough to play him on Saturday night live. It was so, (laughs) I was so awkward. It was so awkward, Jonathan. It was really bad. Um, but it raises an important question yeah, you guys live a fairly cloistered life in some respects, but nothing compared to the Supreme court justices. How often are you socializing with, you know, clerks of the court or Supreme court justices, um, or is the Christmas party a true one-off? Uh,
1: it's it's mostly a one-off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, we, um, most of interaction with the justices, uh, are, is at the lectern? Um, uh, we do occasionally run into them at the Christmas party, although to be, you know, to be fair, they are not there to see us. Uh, and so, um, uh, I will occasionally say hello to, uh, to the justices that I, that I know. Um, but that's about it. Um, and then there's the clerk reunion. So, you know, you mentioned at the top that I clerked for the chief justice. And so we, pre COVID we were having, we had annual, uh, reunions and get to go and, um, and catch up with the chief at those. And, um, uh, and and with uh, with our fellow clerks, but that that's about it. It's not like we're, we're hanging out uh, at the court with the justices or the clerks or there or at you know at their home on the weekends. Or something
0: <laughs> like that. Uh, where are the chiefs clerk reunions?
1: They're at the court. Uh, <clears throat> so we go and um, they usually have uh, both of the uh, what the east and west conference rooms, not the. Not the conference room where the justices meet, but the, the more the places where they host gatherings at the court, and we get to have a sit-down dinner. And uh, the the clerks uh, from that year have to put on a skit, which is uh, which is amusing to the rest of us and terrifying to them. Um, and then uh, we get to catch up with friends and and spend a few minutes. Uh, the chief is always really good to walk around each of the tables and sit down and and catch up with folks there. And so it's a, it's a good time.
0: There's a lot of um, skitting at the Supreme Court. So you'll have, it's sort of famous, there's like a Thursday happy hour that, you know, Chambers will um, trade off hosting. That's like sort of the main sort of regular socialization. But then at the end of the term, there is a skit. And then, like, I'm just finding out about this, you know, traditional chief skit. Um, Like, so those poor clerks have to do like two skits a year.
1: Uh, (laughs) They do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, and the happy hours, I don't know if you, so the, the, there's the actual happy hour, but then, um, if your chambers is in charge of the happy hour of the week, you also have to do the imitation, which itself can kind of turn into, uh, a skit. Um, I will, out of respect for my co-clerks, I will not go into great detail about <laughs> the skits, uh, or the imitations th- that we did, uh, while I was there. Suffice to say, uh, after one of them, Justice Kagan dropped by my office. Just kind of stuck her head in and said, saw your invitation, keep your day job, (laughs) which I took to be a compliment because I, my day job was writing pool memos for her. So that seemed like, you know,
0: yeah, I mean, you could have been, it could have been a really good invitation. And what she was saying was, this was, you were so good at this, but you're like exceptional. Like you're the best who's ever written a pool memo. Maybe. Maybe.
1: Yeah, it's possible. (laughs) It's, it's, it's. That's, that's, that's what one I'm of go the, to the my interpretations. interpretations. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> in sort of a, you know, a textualist analysis, I think both are equally plausible just on the text at least.
1: Which is how Justin Kagan, Justin Kagan would have me.
0: That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. Last question. Um, did you so I published a piece about serial clerks? Did you happen to see my thesis in this?
1: I, I have to say that I saw that you published a piece about serial clerks.
0: Let me give I have you not dug in. Let me give you the, the Cliffs notes here. Basically, uh, 1995, OT95, was the last time anyone clerked on the court without a previous clerkship under their belt. Since then, you've always had at least one clerkship. It's almost always a circuit court clerkship. There have been, I think, two exceptions where um, someone came from a state Supreme Court. But what has happened, if you look at like, um, you know, OT-95 to uh, OT-06, um, you know, some people have multiple clerkships. It's pretty rare. If you look at What's happened just in OT 16 to now, there have been more multi-clerks, serial clerks heading to the court than from 95 to 2016 combined. Um, it's, it's crazy. And so my thesis was that, first of all, by doing so, you're limiting the number of people who have federal clerkships. Uh, there's, you know, that's not an expanding pie. The pie is only so big. And so if someone's taking two of them and a lot of people are taking two of them, then all of a sudden you have fewer people having that opportunity. And that by doing so you are further pushing, um, into the likelihood that they're going to come from elite schools, wealthy backgrounds, if they can afford to clerk for that long and move around the country. And most importantly, to my point, it's much harder for women who have to consider, you know, you graduate law school at 25. It's sort of the beginning of your childbearing years. And you've got to think about partnership track and everything else. So I ask all of, I tell you all of that, not to ask about serial clerking. I'm not going to, you know, ask for your opinion on that, but I get a lot of phone calls from people asking whether clerking is worth it. You clerked at the D.C. Circuit, you clerked at the Supreme Court, you had a Bristow Fellowship, which I hope you'll talk about a little as sort of a quasi-clerkship. If y'all are the 10th Justice, a Bristow Fellowship is the 10th clerkship (laughs) as well. (laughs) Um, Is it it worth it? Uh,
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, uh, I think if you want to do litigation, certainly if you want to do appellate work, but I think if you want to do litigation, it's a pretty easy call. If you can make it work financially um you know it's uh, you're right that it's not <clears throat> it's not nothing uh to give up if you're if the alternative is to go um work at a law firm a private law firm where uh, they pay you know sort of ridiculous salaries sometimes do you know what the new uh, like
0: what, what the starting for a first year lawyer is right now at like the top toppy tippy top firms
1: no i don't i'm sort of terrified to know how much higher it is than my salary
0: yeah 190
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. Uh, Brush I just been here at a law school. <laughs> it's cool. uh,
0: and then, of course, the bonuses from the Supreme Court. If you're a Supreme Court clerk who goes to a firm, those are at 400 right now.
1: Yeah, that's gone up a lot, fat. I mean that that's way higher than. Uh, I mean, I, I was paid more than I was worth when I uh, when I joined Latham, but uh, that's gone up real fast.
0: Yeah, I think my year my my supreme court clerk year from law school i think it was 250 that year i mean so that was 10 years ago it's it's doubled basically yeah
1: yeah um so yeah i, I but I, yeah i do think it's it's worth it i mean the experience uh working for a judge uh you know i've done the i did court of appeals and supreme court as you noted um and both were amazing experiences um i worked for two really great uh, judges and and people um, and I learned a ton uh, while I was there. I learned a lot about the law. I learned a lot about how judges reach their decisions, and I and I learned a ton about how to write, um, which is what I do for a living. So, um, you know, I, I do think it was it was well worth the investment. You you recoup a little bit of it, um, it when you go. If you go to a firm, you get paid a bonus. Um, the Supreme Court bonus is is as you know, you know, it's very large, um, but. You also get a bonus, um, even most firms pay a bonus to any clerk, um, Court of Appeals or District Court. Yes, although, uh, just to be bonus. clear, it's
0: $400,000 if you're coming from the Supreme Court. It's, drum roll, $50,000 if you're coming from any other court. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but that's not nothing either. That's a good chunk of change, uh, help pay off your help pay off your loan. So, I mean, you're not gonna make it up. The, the bonus is, I mean, it's not gonna make up the money that you lost if you had just gone into private practice. But I do think it's worth a uh, worthwhile investment. Um, and you also you know you create bonds with the judges and you create bonds with the clerks that will follow you for the rest of your career and uh, are both you know, just personally uh, uh, fulfilling but also professionally helpful.
0: Talk about your fellowships at the Supreme uh, at the Solicitor General's office.
1: Yeah, so I did um, I did the Bristol Fellowship, as you know, that's a one year fellowship. Um For recent law grads, it's usually um folks who have just come off of a court of appeals clerkship um and we have five of those in the office and um and they work uh with us uh on all the things that I mentioned uh that we do so they help uh research mostly um and help us prepare for uh for for oral argument um you know occasionally we'll if we can carve off uh, a section of a brief to have a bristow write a, a first draft we'll do that too. Um, but they also work on the appeal authorizations on um, helping the SG, um, figure out whether to authorize an appeal. And, and in that process, they play the exact, they don't just, uh, they don't help us. They just play the role of an assistant in that process that works on briefs and opposition. They get to argue a case in the court of appeals. That was my first argument, which was, um, amazing experience. Um, uh, and, uh, um, and then, you know, they'll often go from, from there on to many of them will go on to clerk for the Supreme Court uh, the following year. It's we're pulling from uh, basically the same pool that the justices are hiring from. Um, so that, that's a, um, a I had a wonderful year doing that. Um, I, I got to I got to meet a lot of the folks that I now work with. Eric Fagan was an assistant uh, when I was a Bristow. Jeff Wall was an assistant. In fact, Jeff Wall was one of the Bristow coordinators when I was a Bristow. Uh, Curtis Gannon uh, was an assistant. And then, you know, Ed Niedler was of course a deputy um, as was Malcolm Stewart. So um, that was a great fellowship. And I, uh, I I would encourage anybody who's thinking about um, doing appellate work to, to take a look at that fellowship. We also have, um, I will say, I didn't do this fellowship, but I wish I had, I didn't know it existed. So I'll plug it here. Um, A, a summer fellowship, a summer internship um, for, uh, very recent law grads. So just after you graduate um, from law school, if you're going on to clerk for a court of appeals judge. Usually you start in the fall. And so for that little, the summer in between, we have something called the Phillips Fellowship. Bristow was the first um, SG, Phillips was the second SG. Um, and so those folks come in and they actually do very much uh, similar uh, things that the Bristos do and uh, so far in helping us research and prepare uh for uh writing briefs and, and there are no arguments over the summer obviously but um but they come they'll go to party meetings that we talked about in where the, the office is deciding where to whether to come into a case or what position to take um and uh, and sort of just get involved in the office that way um and it's a great uh, i think it's like it's like a eight-week fellowship or so um to get a taste of the office
0: Fun fact, Benjamin Helm Bristow is his full name. He was the first Solicitor General. The position was established by Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, And then he became Secretary of the Treasury under Grant after that, which is like a, we don't really think of the Solicitor General now as a stepping stone Treasury Secretary, Uh, but that's fun fact. Also, I will note, it's a little hard to tell in his official portrait here whether he is wearing a morning coat. I kind of think he's not. I think he's just wearing a double-breasted coat. Um, and it's definitely not, doesn't look like the, you know, pinstripe one that y'all have. So I don't think this is it. I don't think this is the origin.
1: original. No. Uh, but if you looked at the, the portraits, I don't think the SGs wear were, were uh, their morning coats in their portraits. You Ooh. can go to that, that one page on the DOJ website where you can go yeah. through almost all the portraits. Um, I don't think they're wearing them. So that might not be dispositive.
0: That's frustrating in its own way. You know, like, Why are you not wearing it? That's silly. Because it
1: looks ridiculous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I demand the morning coat. If you're going to do this and wear it to arguments, by God, wouldn't it be so much cooler looking if that hallway that lines the outside of the SG's corridor and has all of the portraits of the SG, if everyone were wearing the exact same thing and all that changes over time are the hair and facial hair, uh, you know, fashions, be very cool.
1: Be cool. Although it's kind of fun, fun to see the uh, the collars and various things uh, on those uh, people who are wearing those portraits are, are interesting in their own right.
0: <laughs> All right, with that, Jonathan Ellis, thank you so much. This is a treat to you know pull back the curtain on on the Solicitor General's office with an assistant to the Solicitor General. I mean, thrilling. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, this is fun. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting. AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code ADVISORY at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.